The Family and Community Health Unit was designed to improve the overall health and wellness of individuals, families, and communities. Our purpose is connecting with the community and helping integrate sustainable practices in everyday life. We educate on a broad range of topics so that we can help with whatever hits you at the home front. Hey there. This is actually part two of our Preserving the Harvest series. So if you haven't caught part one, go back and listen to where we cover the fundamentals of home preservation and walk you through the basics that need to be covered of picking out your method of preservation. But if you're ready for part two, let's dive into the process of how we actually can using the water bath and pressure canning method. So starting off for us, water bath canning. I kind of brushed on this a little bit. I got very excited and started reminiscing about that tried and true black and white speckled enamel pot. Um, Again, not a requirement. Doesn't have to be that pot. However, a boiling water bath canner involves a large, truly large, covered cooking pot that has a rack Um, that can be placed inside. Now, don't fret. A lot of times, too, especially when I teach these classes, we talk a lot about garage sale opportunities because this is kind of one of those things that if someone doesn't know how to can, that this equipment is means nothing to them. This is worthless. There's no sense. And and a lot of canning equipment is kind of bulky and hard to keep up with or, or store. And so if it means nothing to them and they have no use for it, they're not going to do it or pick it up, they're going to get rid of it so quickly uh, and oftentimes fairly cheap. And so we see a lot of canning things sold at garage sales, which I, I'm a Saturday morning garage sale junkie and I love that. But I've also seen some like questionable things um, that if you didn't know or weren't kind of educated or trained to look for things, you might jump on what you feel like is a steal in the canning world. And in reality, I'm like, oh gosh, please don't use that. Uh, I don't care if it was $2 or not. That's that's going to just turn into pretty kitchen decoration <laughs> and not something you'd actually use. But oftentimes you can pick these up pretty cheap. If not, you just want a good large cooking pot uh, and the rack that gets placed inside it's kind of an open wire rack it's got handles it's really easy for you to navigate putting it in and out of the pot if however you find a pot maybe at a garage sale that doesn't come with this rack that's okay there are aftermarket racks and variations of racks that you could pick up um, at a lot of supply places like a Walmart or grocery stores or tractor supplies and, and different um, places like that. So don't fret too much about that. The, the point is you want a pot to be deep enough to allow at least one inch of water that covers the tops of the jars that are being processed. So you're going to put in a little bit of a rack so that those jars aren't fully touching the bottom of the canner or of the pot, and then you're gonna cover that jar with water and allow at least an inch of water to flow around the jar, fully immersed, one inch of water on top. So as long as your canner is big enough to accomplish that, um, that's pretty well. So those black and white speckled pots are pretty 
um, universal because they are so wide and they are so tall that you can fit several around, maybe one in the center. You can maybe do another stack, maybe not, depending on uh, if you're doing a you know half pint jars or, or, or something like that. So that's kind of why they're such a staple. They're really not too expensive if canning is something that you're truly going to get into and do a lot of. They're really pretty economical. So I think that's interesting. Um, the diameter of the pot should be no more than four inches wider than the diameter of the burner. So something to think about if you are maybe li- apartment living and you just have a hot plate or something like that. It's still doable, but just keep that in mind. Uh, so if the pot is too big, the burner not, might not be able to provide enough heat all the way around to those exterior jars um, to really safely process and keep that water maintained at a certain temperature for the entire duration of processing. And so that's the the most common canner that we see. Again, water bath, we're talking salsa, fruit jellies, jams, pickled products, things like that. And then outside of the canner, the equipment that we're looking at are jars and lids. So those clear ball cur jars. There's a couple other brands. We're going to get into jars in a little bit. But uh, usually in extension, we try not to um, name drop on specific brands. We don't want to, you know, we're not getting cut or promoting a a particular brand like Ball or Kerr. However, when it comes to a canning class, this is when we're going to get a little more specific on what we're using because that that science and that proven tested research is there with those products. And so we want a good seal. We want a good quality assurance. So um, we'll kind of talk those Ball and Kerr jars and things like that. A jar lifter, so obviously we're not going to, we want those jars out of there um, and, and to put them in hot water. So a jar lifter, a funnel, uh, it seems silly to, you know, you think I can just eyeball it. Y'all, they're not that expensive. We'll go over why a funnel is so important. And then I still love the headspace checker. Um, and you can also get bubbles out of your product with it. So that headspace checker, um, oftentimes you can find all of these things put together in a little kit for sale. Um, definitely worth the you know $12 investment or whatever it is. Definitely, definitely worth that. Um, yeah, I would say lid lifters or something you also see in kits. Um, that's not really a requirement anymore. You used to, you would have to keep lids really, really hot, um, up until the moment you were processing and, and that's not as big of a deal anymore. So if you're going to be processing a canned item for more than 10 minutes, you don't have to keep those lids um, sterilized and hot in that water anymore. And so used to, you'd see this magnetic lid lifter not really a require anymore, so you don't see it in a lot of kits, um, but still handy if you need it for sure. So as we were talking about jars, um, those mason jars, again, balker, those are kind of the the types that we're looking at. There's a couple other that you can maybe find it at a dollar store, um, but as we as we venture out, I will just preface this again with even the garage sale conversation. Not everything is created for canning. And so sometimes people will get really desperate or they maybe just don't know. And so if you see a, a box of jars at a garage sale and they're glass jars and you think that would be perfect for canning, 
may, maybe not. So some of those aren't, um, that glass is not tempered enough to allow to be pressurized like that. If you think about putting them in a, a pressure canner at 240 degrees Fahrenheit for extended periods of times, pushing an hour and a half to two hours, you've maybe seen the horror story pictures of when they finally get to open the pressure canner lid, they see a bunch of busted jars. Okay, well, that that's where we're kind of lending ourselves to that happening is we're not using um, tried and true jars we know are rated for that kind of pressure and rated for that kind of temperature. So it has to deal with thickness and tempering. And so those mason jars are what we're going for. Now, the regular mouth versus the wide mouth, that doesn't make a difference. It's a, it's a preference. It's a style choice. It's maybe just what was in stock or not in stock at the time. So that is is kind of a, a dealer's choice and up to you. Um, there are different sizes of jars. So the bigger one that you're going to see in recipe books call for is a quart. And then from there, you're going to go down to a pint. And then... Um, then when you talk jellies, I feel like you're usually seeing that half pint and that quarter pint. That quarter pint is just going to be that small little cup-like um, amount. And so quart down to pint, and pint is kind of maybe that traditional like mason jar glass that is just kind of everywhere. And then the smaller we get half pint, and then that little one is going to be our quarter pint jar. So that's commonly what you're going to see on the shelves and in recipe books calling for. And so another thing to think too is the size of the jar is going to determine your processing time. So keep that in mind as you're reading your recipe books. If they call for a specific time and they've called for a specific size of jar, if you adjust the size of jar you're going to have to adjust the time. So be really mindful of looking for different recipes or conversion charts and keep an eye out for that. So the size of the jar determines your processing time. The other thing that comes into play here are the lids. And so um, lids are most commonly thought of in a two-piece system. So the flat lid that kind of has that rubber gasket ceiling on the underneath side and then the ring as well. Um, these are self-sealing, so uh, like that rubber gasket doesn't come off. It, it's made together. Um, but on those, you have to follow the manufacturer's instructions. Um, so things like using them within five years of purchase. And so sometimes when you're at a garage sale and you see a ton of extra lids and, you know, it says $2 for the whole thing or, you know, 50 cents, a quarter a, a box, that that's great and it seems like a steal but those companies have sunk time and money into testing and knowing that those gaskets can only be insured for those five years of purchase there should be an expiration date or a lot code on the back that indicates how long or what year they'll be good till and so without that um those lids are really just have become craft projects um you certainly can still seal a jar up for something else you know maybe you're keeping who knows seasoning or something like that in it and that's fine and well but if you are purchasing those items for truly canning and truly making that salsa shelf stable for a year then let's go ahead and invest the few dollars it takes to to buy new lids um, and they're single use 
So that's another thing too. Um, those lids, that seal is a one-time uh, use item. And so every year you will have to replace just the lids. That's why they're not too, too expensive. Um, but the rings can be reused. So as long as they're in good condition, they're not rusting, um, they're still threading correctly and getting a good seal for you, those bands can definitely be reused. So um, anything other than that, uh, like as far as the reusable lids, you're going to have to follow the manufacturer's instructions on those. Those are kind of uh, still fairly new and new is a, lo a loose term you may have seen them on the shelves for a couple of years but the as far as research world goes they're still fairly new and so um you'll see i think the name brand is like tattler uh, and so the university of georgia is currently um exploring that and researching that um but that two-piece individual lid individual ring that system is going to be the staple when canning Okay, so even choosing the right um, water bath canner for your stovetop and cooktop are very important. My mom and I have this conversation a lot. We have um, completely different units. She has an electric glass top. Um, I have a gridded gas top, so very different worlds. And so um, depending upon what we're going to be canning or for how long determines whose house we can at. So um uh, if the cooktop is electric, then the count the canner itself should have a flat bottom. Okay, so like those ridged bottoms, and um, that kind of have the ripple um, effect on the bottom. Uh, can be used on a gas range just fine. And so that's all about just making sure that heat distribution is very consistent, um, and that can be hard to achieve uh, on an electric stovetop. So. If it's an electric stovetop, we want a the flat canners. If it's a gas range, we're okay with those ridged um, or, or different bottomed canners. Um, but if the cooktop is a solid surfer, surface, you're going to want to look at the manufacturer's instructions before canning for sure. And so this one is hard. My mom and I usually use... Um, a separate burner, um, just a little plug-in burner because hers is a glass top, um, and it's out of an abundance of caution. Um, they've they've broken a glass top before, N not not from canning, but just in general. And man, that is that's man, that's heartbreaking to replace. So just out of an abundance of cautious, um, we will get a little individual burner from like Walmart. We'll pick one up for under 20 bucks and that's just what we can with and do other things with. And so um, be really, really mindful that you're kind of reading up, making sure that your equipment works. Again, if you're getting something at a garage sale, um, especially in the canning world, make sure it still has all the manufacturer's instructions, booklets, anything that would go with it um, and be really mindful of even the type of canner, the de look and design that you're getting, and make sure it's compatible with the uh, appliances that you have at home. Okay, we're going to keep diving into some kind of interesting information that's out there in the canning world, because this is where in classes people are I don't know, just getting lots of ideas and questions once we start talking about cooktops and buying different pressure canners and buying different water bath pots and they're thinking about their home setup and they're like, well, 
What about Instapots? What about multifunction cookers? They have a little canning button on those. What about those? And so there are lots of manufacturer devices that are out there. Um, I would say those are not recommended for pressure canning, um, even if they have a button that says canning. And, and here's the thing is canning is all about boiling water right and and water boils at different points and at different temperatures whether you're at sea level or not Um, and more often than if you're anywhere around me you're not at sea level so knowing your elevation is key and those multifunction cookers don't adjust for that they don't adjust time or temperature or pressure based upon the change in elevation and so we know from the years of research that that is a factor when canning and so the fact that those aren't able to adjust um we caution against and say those are great for cooking probably probably not canning we're gonna stick to our proven sourced uh appliances the water bath canner and the pressure canner and not those multi-function cookers so some other unsafe methods, um, things like the open kettle method, um, people will can in their oven. Um, I think that is so interesting to me. I, I had a, another extension agent explain it to me like this one time, and she said, you know, the oven gets super, super hot, right? And I was like, well, yeah. And she was like, but you can open it and stick your hand inside the oven to get items out and to retrieve things, right? And I was like, oh, well, yeah, obviously. And she was like, yeah, you cannot and should not do that with canning. Like that that environment, that water it should be so hot, like that we're sterilizing, we're we're killing bacteria, we're, we're sealing, we're really vacuum pressuring and vacuum sealing those products and those jars. And so the fact that the inside of an oven is hot, but not hot enough that we can't stick our hands in and do stuff and rearrange and choose like that, that just goes to show you that it's not hot enough consistently and the whole time to really process these jars to be shelf stable. And so... Whenever you see open canning methods, uh, like using the oven or something, those are going to be a no-go. Those are not safe. I don't care what the product is inside of it. It's not even about the product that it's inside of the jar. The oven is not a place to can in. Um, Same with sun canning. Um, I know it's kind of a running joke. It's hot here. And so people, you know, talk about heating up their meals in the dashboard and using the sun for lots of different things and and I'll I'll just say this sun tea is a thing and that's that's where it ends that's where it begins and ends with sun tea there's nothing else food preservation or the world of food that you should be doing that involves you using the sun and the sun alone and and it's funny to me because I I had someone in a class one time that came to me and was like well we you know strung beef up in the windmill 50 years ago and just carved on it all winter and we were perfectly fine and we ate like that so you know this the food preservation is pushing an agenda and you know we're not about to get political at all but I just kind of was thinking oh man like for a split second I thought shoot does this lady have a point like that's crazy and you know I love some Laura Ingalls Wilder days like wouldn't that be great to live like that maybe not that might be a hard life but then I stopped and thought yeah, but their life expectancy back then probably wasn't very far. And now we're seeing people, 
live well and thrive into their late 80s, 90s. And that's very, very common in today's day and age. But we know a lot more about food safety and keeping people from getting sick and keeping people out of the hospital and other advancements in the medical field. And so, yes, there are people that will say, string a beef up in the windmill, sun can your jelly. Mm, We know more today and thank goodness for it. So water bath, pressure canner, that's what you're going to hear me say. There even was this interesting thing, and this surfaced up a lot on my social media. You can tell that the algorithm was working uh, because dishwasher canning came up on my social media platforms so much during the pandemic. And it was kind of an interesting notion, right? Like, that's an enclosed area for a certain amount of time, hot water. Like, I get the concept, maybe, of what's going on here, Um but no, just no. Like, it, it's not consistent enough. It's not hot enough. It's not long enough. You can't adjust for altitude. You can't adjust time, temperature, none of the control factors. Uh, just no, absolutely not. Can't get a dishwasher. Keep on, keep on scrolling. That's, that's a no. So, again, there's lots of different fun hacks and tips and tricks and homesteading things um, that are so interesting and recipes that are so interesting, but the premise of food preservation lies in food safety. The point is to make this food safe and shelf stable for an extended amount of time. And so we're going to stick to proven methods of ensuring that food quality and that food safety. So with that being said, we're going to kind of dive into now we kind of know why we can and, and things that we're looking out for and which method of canning or preservation are we going to pick and what do we need to be able to do that. And now that maybe you've kind of like tackled some of the what equipment do I need, how do I do it, that's what we're going to focus on, the process of actually canning. So before you begin canning or begin putting product into your jars, um, you are going to prep the jars. So obviously you're going to look for any chips or anything like that around the rims. You want especially is, is a huge, obviously you don't want a broken jar, um, but especially around that rim, check for those uh, minor little chips or indentations because any blemish, um, sometimes even from the factory, and this is where we get into buying um, kind of a safe brand of jars versus maybe jars that you found at a craft supply place or something like that because any little bubble or ripple or imperfection in a seam of that glass could very well cause that lid that rubber gasket to not seal evenly or tightly or flush and so inspecting those jars making sure there's no little ripple bubble crack chip anything like that um, and cleaning those jars in some hot soapy water kind of sanitizing them that's going to be your four work. And then if your jars are processed for more than 10 minutes, you don't actually have to sterilize them anymore. I will say, though, that you want to put hot recipes, hot food, you want to put them in hot jars. You want to have that water in that canner hot anyway. Um, and so if you are if you have hot water ready to go for your canner and you stick a cold jar in there, you're, you're kind of lowering that water temperature and it's going to have to build its way back up to a simmer. It's going to have to build its way back up to boiling and, and different things like that. And so uh, what I like to do is just start off heating up my water in a canner 
um, and put it on high. And I'll put those empty jars in that water. Like they'll essentially be filled with water that's in the canner. I'll put those empty jars, submerse them, let them fill with that water and let the jars and the water kind of heat up at the same time. So that's where that jar lifter really comes into play because as I'm making my jelly recipe or my salsa recipe and I see that my canner is ready, I'm just going to take that jar lifter, pull that jar up, let out the water um, that I know is clean, I know it's hot, I know it's all sterile, then I'll fill it with my product um, and, and we'll go from there. So if your jars are processed for more than 10 minutes, no sterilization is needed. So less than 10 minutes, you will need to sterilize, so boiling them off for 10 minutes. Um, but keep in mind, elevation plays a factor here. Um, and so especially around here, there's really not a single recipe that we're doing that's under 10 minutes. And so more often than not, you're, you're pretty safe in that regard here. Okay, so we have our jars ready, we're heating up our, our, our canner and our water, um, and we're getting ready to fill our jars. And so oftentimes our product is going to be hot. Now there are some things that you could raw pack, um, but for this we're specifically going to talk maybe about jellies or salsas or something that um, we'd really want to use that funnel. Um, and I told you that might sound silly to use a funnel, but... Um, this is a, a kind of a wide mouth funnel. If you've never seen one before, it doesn't completely taper down to a triangle. It kind of just rests on the inside lip of that jar. So it still gives you plenty of room to like push that product through. Um, it's not bottlenecking it by any means, but what it's doing is keeping any residue from your product getting on the, the lip or the rim of that jar. And so you'll see at the end of this, we'll wipe down our jars anyway, so that that lid sets cleanly on that rim and is able to seal without any disruption. But that funnel is just an added measure to help keep any residue off. So then the other thing is once you're packing your jars, headspace comes into play. And I know there are people out there that can measure based upon the rings or the threading on the top of a jar and say like, oh, this is the quarter, this is the half, this is an inch of headspace. That has never been a great method for me. Um, I always think like, now what side of the jar were they looking at? Which threads? Like this thread starts here. And so um, I, I'm still stuck on the head spacer. Um, a lot of times that's put out by ball. There might be some other brands on the market and I think that's great. Um, but be really cognizant of whatever measurement that you get in a recipe. If this recipe says, leave a quarter inch of head space on each jar, follow that to a T. Don't eyeball it. Don't, um, unless you're just super seasoned at that, but don't say like, oh, you know, this one didn't fill up all the way. That's fine. So be it. It's not. That headspace is calculated into that recipe for a, a reason. And so if you don't reach your headspace, um, you're going to just take that jar and put it in the fridge and that's the jar jelly you're going to eat first. That's the salsa jar you're going to eat first right away. And so you're not even necessarily going to process that. There's no point in processing that. So if you overfill it, you're going to risk um, that food product boiling over during the processing. Um, and it will boil over before that lid gets a chance to like truly seal seal before that gasket really compresses and really seals. And so you're going to get food boil over. Uh, if you've ever opened your canner and your water is like tinted the color of, um, you know, your food or your product, uh, some of it is probably boiling over and leaching over because we've got our jars filled up too much. And so this is kind of a master... Um, 
rule really to to keep in mind the headspace it's there for a reason it's a specific amount of air needed to allow for that vacuum sealing to take place to um, allow for um, not enough air to allow bacteria to grow and some other things and so following headspace rules very very important Okay, so filling jars, we talked about they're filled, we've measured headspace, we know they're appropriate. You can take the, that same tool, a butter knife, whatever it is, and kind of poke through your product, release any air bubbles. Um, not a surefire requirement for food safety, but you know, if you were going to be entering these jars like in a fair or something like that, or you wanted to gift them and just wanted them to look really, really pretty, getting rid of those air bubbles are really going to go a long way in helping that jar look really good. Um, and again, for the sake of food safety, we want to eliminate we know fat tom the o in that is oxygen we know that bacteria love oxygen uh, and so eliminating just any extra ability for bacteria to grow that's what we're gonna do so we filled the jars we've measured headspace we've kind of gotten those bubbles out we're gonna take just a damp paper towel doesn't have to have product on it um, and in fact shouldn't but a lot of people will say oh put vinegar on there that's not a requirement but just wipe off the the ring or the rim of that jar to make sure it's clean and is gonna get a good seal uh, and then we're gonna put the lid on um, and then we're going to screw that band on now, not too tight, just a couple of twists and enough that we know it's on there tight, but not so tight that it gives us a false sense of sealing. So very important. Now we've talked about our water bather having that basket, having that tray, putting the jars in, making sure there's enough water to cover and, you know, an inch above those jars. Um, and then we're going to cover it and follow the recipe instructions as far as let this process for 10 minutes or whatever it may be. Pressure canning, a little bit different. Um, this canner, especially we've talked about, there's a difference between a pressure cooker and a pressure canner. So a pressure canner is going to have a dial gauge. Um, it could have some weights to it, um, and oftentimes we'll have at least one weight to kind of um, plug up a spout that allows you to build some pressure. But often we see a lot of the dial gauges that will show you and hold and read um, pressure and tell you how many pounds of pressure you're building at that particular time. And so pressure canner, very important piece of equipment. And so the pressure is generated in this type of counter that allows food to be heated at temperatures higher than 212. So not something we could have accomplished in our stock pot because that water is going to boil off. Heat is going to escape. So we have to have pressure. Again, this is our low acidic foods that require a high amount of pressure. So a lot of our vegetables, okra, green beans, things like that. As we dive into all that a pressure canner entails, uh, making sure that it has a rack on the bottom. We do not want our jars touching the metal bottom portion of that canner. So having a rack, again, there are aftermarket racks. If yours uh, maybe doesn't come with one anymore, you picked it up secondhand and it's just kind of gotten lost or broken over the years, that's fine. There are aftermarket things you can get. So having a rack on the bottom uh, and anytime you stack jars, having something in between. Those metal rings and lids are going to get hot. You don't want your jars sitting on top of that for heat purposes. You want air and or not really air, but water to flow between. You want that full circuit of water um, to really really help 
process these jars. And so for lots of reasons, you're going to want a barrier on the bottom and if stacking. Um, you're going to have a pressure regulator or kind of an indicator, and that's where we talked about we're going to have either that dial or some weighted gauges. And then your vent pipe or your port, um, and that's what oftentimes people will have like just one weight to set on top of that port um, to kind of help build pressure. Um, you'll obviously have a safety valve um, for an overpressure plug and then some safety locks and, and other gaskets and things like that and fittings on the inside. So looking over your equipment, making sure that that gasket is in good condition, it's not worn or brittle, um, and making sure that dial is in good condition as well. If you are in the panhandle or just about anywhere nowadays, I feel like those dials are susceptible to uh, a fluctuation in temperatures or being dropped or things like that so canning is often a seasonal thing for a lot of people and if you're around here we have cold cold winters and hot hot summers and so that temperature fluctuation really messes with those dial gauges and so there are lots of different places that will test gauges for you so maybe some um, appliance stores um, we have a mom and pop appliance store here that will test them most extension offices that's probably what I do the most of during the summer is test people's gauges for them and it's about a 50 50 sometimes they read completely accurate and sometimes I'll test them and when my master gauge is reading five pounds of pressure and theirs is already reading 10 pounds of pressure that that's when uh, clearly it's off but that's when when people have fears of their pressure canner or cooker exploding um, and tearing up their kitchen or causing damage or you know and they fear their own safety or you know the safety of their kitchen I get that and that makes sense but if you're following these guidelines and you're getting your pressure canner tested and you, and you know that it holds an accurate amount of pressure um, you should be more than safe and so getting them tested very very important and crucial part of owning a pressure canner and beginning to pressure can foods. So as we talk about pressure canning, we're going to kind of walk through that process just a little bit and think of the same premise of we want um, that water already in the pressure canner. And so I mentioned early on that we're not filling the entire thing with water. Each canner specifically is going to come with a user manual and a set of instructions and depending upon what quart or size canner you have you know whether it's a 16 or a 23 quart canner that's going to have maybe varying instructions but um, it will tell you how much water to put in the canner and so you're not going to be filling it all the way you're not going to get that inch of water above you're usually going to have between two and three inches of water sitting uh, in the bottom so those those jars will not be fully immersed um, and so read your manufacturer's instructions on that but essentially you're going to have that hot water you're going to your jars are going to have been hot um, you're going to put your product in doing the same method as when you're water bathing. You're going to use the funnel, pour in your product. You're going to wipe down the rim. You're going to put the lid on. You're going to put the band on, not sealing it too tight. You're going to use that lid lifter again to then place it very carefully into uh, that pressure canner, mindful that that basket is under there. Um, 
And then this is where pressure canning is is different too in the processing and what that looks like. So then you're going to shut that lid um, and different canners have different um, locking mechanisms. I will say uh, the the newer the canner, the probably safer it is. Um, Pressure canners are good and can be used for many, 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 many years, many generations. Um, a lot of times there's nothing wrong with the old ones, um, but some of those newer ones are just a little bit safer. They So they might have some varying differences in how they lock, but ensuring that your pressure canner, the lid goes on and it locks correctly. Um, and then you're going to follow your recipe, turn up your heat, and you're going to wait for that pressure canner to build up pressure. So your weight is going to be off of that vent pipe and you're going to, um, I always set a timer because I'm just like curious and like a researcher of the process in nature. And so I always set a timer and kind of see how long it takes, but that weight is going to be off. You're going to be looking and listening at that valve. Um, and when it starts to kind of hiss or, um, you know, spit steam out and kind of start to make noise, it'll do it sporadically in the beginning. And then once it starts to do it truly consistently and you know that you are building building up steam, you've got heat in there, you're going to build up pressure, and it's consistently spouting, you can put that single weight on that valve. And then again, now you've entered the second phase, and you're going to wait for that dial gauge to start building pressure that coincides with what your recipe says. So if your recipe says, process at 12 pounds of pressure for x amount of minutes you're going to wait and watch that pressure canner build up on that dial to 12 and as it's getting close um to 12 pounds i will start backing off of the heat and maybe kind of take it off of high heat so i don't keep building up too much if you do happen to build up too much it's fine just go ahead and like temper it bring it back down get it to that sweet spot of whatever your recipe calls for that 12 pounds is the example we're going with today. So get it to sit at that 12 pounds of pressure. And once you can get it to stay there consistently with your burner, then you're going to start your timer for whatever your recipe called for. 45 minutes if it's carrots, you know, an hour and a half, whatever your recipe calls for. Um, that is the timer that you're going to go off of and you're going to allow those jars to process. That is the canning process. And so once time is off, you're going to turn off the heat um, and just remove it from the heat. And then you are going to let it slowly build down and release pressure and come let that dial gauge come back down off of pressure until it reads at zero you can take that weight off nothing is happening um, and it allows you to unlock and remove that lid safely so we talked a little bit about overcoming the fear of pressure canners you know exploding or doing different things and and I get that fear my mom is one of those people um, that has that fear and and I totally get it I would not want to ask my husband to remodel my kitchen because I ruined it with a flying pressure canner lid so I, I, I get that uh, but this is where that processing time takes a long time because you can see right then and there in that format that even if your recipe calls for an hour and a half you still have the time before it of building up steam, building up heat, building up pressure, capping it off, allowing it to truly build up the correct pound of pressure, the processing time that the recipe called for, and the time to let it come off of pressure and let it release kind of on its own 
is a significant amount of time just to process one batch. And so oftentimes when we see stories of, you know, things going wrong or catastrophic incidences with a canner, um, people might be trying to expedite that process. So like, you know, really cooling it off or trying to, you know, gosh, sometimes you'll even see this is where social media makes me nervous because they'll say, you know, life hack, do this to your pressure canner and it will cut your cooling time in half. And I'm like, oh my gosh, don't do that. Like, that's not, that's not worth it. That's when we start to get unsafe. And so leave it alone, let that process be, and and that will ensure some safety there for sure. Um, So processing type times depend on the type of food that you're canning again just like everything else you know the size of the jar will often dictate your your processing time same with the food the thickness of the food what it takes to kill off certain bacteria the type of canner you're using that's all gonna be specific to what your processing time is so again don't don't think i'll just can these together and it'll be fine i don't don't like my green beans too mushy anyway so i'll just do it at 30 minutes or i'll just do it at 45 minutes that that's not that's not really how that works so keep keep those factors in mind um and then we're going to talk elevation a little bit i've kind of touched on that and so there's been a lot of research to adjust your um pounds of pressure or your processing time based upon altitude. And so everything in recipe books are figured at sea level. However, we know a lot of places are not actually at sea level. And so a high altitude, water boils at a lower temperature. So water boils at 212. Around here where I live, water boils like 209, 210, somewhere in there. And so um, getting that water hot enough to kill bacteria is what's important and so with the boiling water bath method we're gonna have to boil longer and so to pressure can we're gonna have to increase those pounds of pressure and so that's when using those tested recipes and guidelines um, for canning at higher altitudes are going to be so important because if a blog written by someone in Colorado and they might have the best homestead and the best advice but if they have adjusted their recipes accordingly and published them for someone who's reading this uh, in lower New Mexico those processing times those pounds of pressure not going to be the same so being being very mindful of that so for every 1,000 feet or more above sea level you're going to adjust your processing time and go up. So it doesn't have to exceed um, anything crazy. Just every thousand feet you'll exceed but or you'll increase by one. So if you are like here in the panhandle, the specific region I'm at, we're a little over 3,000. We're like 3,400, 3,500. That's okay. That 500 part pretty much doesn't even matter. We're going in increments of 1,000 and adjust accordingly. So adjust your time, adjust your pressure pressure by every 1,000 feet. Okay, so then what happens during processing? Because we know it's not just about getting our green beans to the certain doneness that we want. It's about processing and killing bacteria that causes spoilage and foodborne illness. So that air is being pushed out of the jar 
Um, that's why headspace is so key because this is all factored in based on a lot of air and vacuum sealing. So air actually gets pushed out of that jar and the jar cools afterward and it creates this kind of vacuum seal to keep bacteria from getting back into the food or growing. And so um, in processing, it's really, really neat because once you remove your jars, now again, we're, we should talk about this a little bit too, remove them one at a time and don't tilt them. Especially in water bath, um, there's going to be an excess amount of water on the top and you're going to be tempted to like pour it tilt it kind of pour that water off the top and then set it off on like a towel or something that you have off to the side cooling those jars and those lids is just as much a part of the sealing process as anything else and so at the time we're taking them out of the canner those jars are hot the lids are hot the seals are hot and they haven't completely finished sealing if you will and so when you tilt those jars, you could allow food um, and your product to get in between the jar and the seal, and then everything we did was all for naught. And so um, don't don't tilt your jars. Just remove them, place them um, on your towel, and leave them alone. Let your jars sit undisturbed for 12 to 24 hours, and you'll. it's so much fun. This is like the rewarding part of the process for me is – after you've done all that work, later on in the day, you're going to be doing other things around your house, cleaning up, resting, who knows what, and you'll start to hear like pop, pop, and those lids will start um, sealing and vacuuming down in it. You often can hear it, and those jars will pop, or the lids will pop anyway, um, and it's it's a satisfying feeling to hear that. And so that means your jars are sealing, which is good. Again, leave them alone for that 12 to 24 hours. This is so crucial and so important for your product to set up, for your seals to not be disturbed, to let them um, seal properly. And so not messing with them. Don't go pushing them up and down to see if they've processed or not. And then after those 24 hours, you're going to go and test and see if they've sealed or not. If they're bubbling and, and you know, you can tap, tap on the lid and it will go up or down and give and make noise, um, you'll know that that jar didn't seal. And so if you notice a jar didn't seal within 24 hours of you processing, you kind of have three options. The easiest is you can just refrigerate that jar and that becomes the jar that you eat first. That's the jelly you eat first, the salsa you eat first, or something like that. You can move to a different different method of preservation like freezing. You can just put the contents of that in a different container, freeze it off, um, and, and go that route. Or you can reprocess with a new lid and do the full processing time. So no shortcuts. Again, this is the same scenario the full processing time. And so this is where there are some things that it might make sense to reprocess, but especially with pressure canned products, those, we'll say green beans for an example, those green beans are going to be so mushy if you've processed them twice. So they had an hour and a half of processing the first go around and another hour and a half processing. At that point, it almost kind of doesn't make sense. So if you just have a handful of jars that didn't seal, eat those first, rearrange your meal prep plans, include those, get those eaten um, out of the refrigerator quickly. If you have a whole batch that didn't seal, um, and I'm, I wouldn't love maybe the quality of a reprocessed 24 
jars of green beans and start looking at freezing. Start looking at a different method of putting those up uh, and freezing being one of them. So if jars don't seal and it's been longer than 24 hours, if you were on it, you had to go to work, whatever, um, those jars aren't safe. And not only that, but like the food product in them isn't safe. We didn't intervene. We didn't freeze or do something different, reprocess in a quick enough amount of time to ensure that um, bacteria just didn't completely take over. And so if you didn't catch it within 24 hours, uh, we're, we're going to throw them out. We're going to completely get rid of that product. So that's heartbreaking, but that's why canning just takes a solid amount of time because there's some prep work, there's the processing, and then there's kind of this after period of making sure things seal, being able to kind of punt, adjust, and do different things. And so reasons for jars not sealing. Um, as an extension agent in my office, I'm kind of seeing some of these questions right now a lot, just given the season that we're in. And two, a lot of people are maybe using um, things they found at a garage sale, things they've got at a, a store that's maybe, you know, not known for selling food grade products or, or things like that. And so um, these are kind of the scenarios that I'll walk through with clients when they call uh, because they have processing that didn't set up or didn't seal. And so we'll talk about um, where they got their jars and lids and rings from, how often have they been used, do we feel like they've gone bad, are those lids within the five-year period, um, are those jars like rated for canning and things like that, do they maybe have any dimples or any imperfections along the rim, um, was there food particles left on the rim, how was headspace, did we, you know, measure that according um, to getting air out, um, other things like when they were lifting jars, um, did they use a jar lifter and really go around um, just that very edge of the lid or did they go all the way down to the jar to kind of not disturb the lid? Did they tilt them? Um, a lot of times people will can and process by turning their jars upside down um, and that's a huge no-no in the food safety world and in the canning world. We see that a lot on different social media platforms. Um, and so that's something we talk about. That's not um, kind of an approved safe method of sealing those jars. That, that'll give you a false sense of seal. And at some point, whenever you turn them back around and, and store them, um, they'll sure enough loosen up. And so that's not a, a great method of sealing. And so we'll talk about that. Um, and then sometimes there's just no telling. It's hard to really pinpoint what the factor is, but just knowing you have a, you know, within that 24 hour period, you need to kind of go to plan B or, or throw that food out. And we sure hate to waste that. So being mindful of what would I do if this doesn't seal and kind of having that backup plan in place um, is, is super important. So I want to touch on one other thing as we start wrapping up. We've kind of gone through the process of all of this. Um, and, but something that we haven't touched on yet um, is when you are processing, and specifically I feel like this one goes to pressure canning, um, is when you're packing your jars. Um, that's just a term you find in canning a lot. It, when you put food or product into the jars, we call that packing. Um, and there's different recipe books that will call for raw pack such and such in your jars um, or you'll hot pack this recipe features hot pack salsa or you know something like that and so it's basically just was your food product cold or room temperature or um, was it hot was it a recipe that you cooked on the stove and then added to your cans and so 
raw packed is what it sounds like, raw carrots. Um, I use carrots as an example, but there's raw packed and hot packed. And so something to be said for liquid loss. This is another phone call I get quite a bit when people can something and they say, I wanted to enter my jars in the fair, but you know, I processed them and, and they're sealed. The jar is completely sealed, but for some reason, you know, I had the correct amount of headspace. I swear I did. But when I pulled him out, gosh, there's just not the same amount of liquid. Like the jar's only halfway full of liquid. And that's the first question I'll ask is, did you hot pack or did you raw pack those products? Because we know that when you're cooking, um, it's going to take in moisture, absorb moisture, and do different things. And so that makes total sense then. And that losing liquid because you raw packed isn't... Uh, unsafe. There's nothing wrong with that. That maybe is a jar that isn't going to get a, you know, grand champion ribbon or a first place ribbon at a, at a county fair or, or a contest of that nature, but it's by all means safe and shelf stable to eat as long as it's sealed properly. And so liquid loss is a thing, but don't let it deter you. Um, you know, sometimes they see that at farmer's markets, you know, people are selling their goods and, and I've heard people before walk by and be like, did you see that? That didn't have hardly any water in it. There's no way they canned that right. Well, they did. They just, they just raw packed it. Um, and so it's just a personal choice there. Um, different foods absorb water, um, at different rates and kind of react different. So, um, other times you might think, did you get all your air bubbles out? Um, and, and were you using all of your equipment correctly? And so sometimes there are some color changes that happen. Um, just if that food product, um, was fresher or towards, um, kind of maybe the end of its life cycle and we just canned it in a hustle to preserve it before it went bad, um, might alter kind of the color. Um, but more often than not still, still deemed safe. And so lastly, really quick, we're going to talk about just storing canned foods. Um, and so this is something that I find it interesting, and this was a hard habit for me to break. But when we're storing our canned foods, we don't need the ring anymore. We don't want to double stack in our pantries. I know a lot of times we're worried about space, and so we'll double stack. Um, that is a no-no in the canning world, and um, because that lid is just like, man, that's so sacred, and that's an area that we just don't mess with. Um, because if it were to have come loose um, just naturally or you know if you kind of hit it or bumped into it but if it naturally just didn't seal well but you had it stacked high in the pantry with other jars on top of it um, you know it's not going to kind of give or have that bounce that you think of an unsealed lid having and so it gives you that false sense of quality that false sense of safety that it's sealed and so we don't stack and we don't leave the rings on because also too if that ring is screwed on there really tight um, and that lid is naturally going to let loose um, it gives you again a false sense of allowing that air to like let in and pop that way we can tell that like hey that jar is not sealed um, and so removing those lids not stacking um, and using your products within one year so when we're canning we're looking at being shelf stable for six months to a year and so when people are using this as a hobby um, or because they're getting into homesteading that that's great but when when people are getting into maybe home preservation um, for social media and other things, um, I see that people are, you know, maybe prepping for a day without um, electricity or access to food. Um, I think that that makes great sense, and, and I understand that. But 
make sure that you are going to eat and consume what you have. Don't put it on the shelf to have it for two, three, five years if and when you might ever need it because that quality will go downhill. And so it's not meant to exceed a year. And so keeping to that six month to a year mark, that's what we want to see with our home goods. Okay, when to throw out home goods. This is another one too. Um, Again, if those jars didn't process correctly and you didn't catch it 24 hours after, um, we're tossing them. If there's any unexplained cloudiness, now there's a difference between, you know, kind of the color of the vegetable getting, you know, duller or, you know, just changing a little bit of color and brightness and like the actual liquid in it being truly cloudy. Um, Obviously, if it has a strange odor when you go to open it, odor is a big indicator. Of course, mold growth, things like that are pretty common knowledge, but sometimes, um, I'll note this, um, I was helping out at a fair one year and we were taking entries for multiple days and, and one day we came back to the fairgrounds and, and we were getting everything set up and ready to start taking entries in again and, and a few of us looked over at a table and this one jar is like f- like frothing and fizzing over and some like bubbles are like excreting out the top of it um and the product looked fine it didn't smell weird but all that foam and fizzing like there's no reason it should have just been sitting on a table and these green beans are like frothing so that's a really good indication that um some some gases and some bacteria are really going to town growing in there and um yeah we got we got rid of that for sure so um kind of use some common sense and some good judgment um, there and don't be afraid to throw out um, canned goods that don't seem to be safe or have their quality insured anymore. I know it's really, really hard because if we got something from a grocery store and it had any of those indicators, we would throw it out easily. But when it's something that we've invested so much time and money in, we always kind of have that like second doubt. We're like, well, you know, maybe, mm, no, don't, don't mess around with food safety. Don't mess around with your health, your life. It's not worth it. When in doubt, throw it out. That's the message there. So I hope that you have enjoyed this. This is kind of a long kind of crash course into canning, but I feel like it's so important to get these messages out about the different processes that we have available to us and understanding how we do what we do, keep our homesteads safe and prepped, keep our families fed, and we're better able to deal with whatever hits us at the home front. For more information on the topic, check out the show notes for this episode or visit with your local county extension office.